Welcome, everyone. Um, I have to tell you, Craig is out sick. No. So uh, we will we'll pray for him and Silas. Uh, they both came down with something Friday afternoon, and they're just laid out. So uh, Craig sent out a text yesterday um, to a couple of us just asking if we had something prepared. And so, um, uh, you know, there was another person who had something prepared, but it was in, in Peter. And uh, it's chapter four, and I had something. And so I think Craig's going to be going over Peter chapter four shortly. So, so the lot fell to me. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, anyway, let, let me pray for us, and we're also going to pray for Craig and uh, Silas, who are out. But uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for today. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the message we heard today about how, uh, how you, uh, our Lord, has um, trained up men, and um, that continues even to this day. And even we thank you for the, the men in our church, Lord, who... Um, endeavor to train up men to go out and proclaim the, the truth of your word and it's only by your by your word that that people are saved and so we just pray for that to continue to go out and um, we pray also for uh, Craig and Silas who are at home sick Lord just pray that you would touch them and heal them quickly and that uh, they would be up on their feet again um, soon and and even that Craig would be back next week so that we could hear him uh, preach about um, first Peter and uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help me to uh, bring to mind clarity of mind in, uh, in the verse I'm going to preach on today, Lord. And um, we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Mike Grayheck. Uh, I've been here at Grace Church, just started Debbie, so it's okay. Uh, we've been here for two years. We got here uh, June of 2011. We moved from California. We heard that, a lot of people leaving California. Um, and so we landed here and we've been here since then and we're just just happy that we found a church that is faithfully preaching God's word. And, uh, and they continue to do that. And you can see that God is bringing people to this church and I'm, I'm gonna make, make the assumption because they're believers and they wanna hear his, his word preached because that's the, that's, that's the highest uh, a calling a church can have is to faithfully preach his word. Because it's the only way that we can, people can be saved, number one. Number two is that it's how we learn to, um, to grow in, in Christ, that we're sanctified, that we learn obedience to him, learn how the, we are to um, act and interact with one another. Because prior to being saved, uh, we don't believe or we don't behave that way, right? We have, we have a sinful life, and uh, as a result of that, you know, we're alienated from God, and then we become believers, and from that moment on, we do have power over sin. It's through the power of the Word working through us and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, and so today, we're going to look at a verse, um, Ephesians 5.25. Does anybody know that? Just, you haven't memorized. No. 5.25. Ephesians 5.25. Uh, it, it, that's close, but no, it's, uh, that's, a, that's in, within that, that train, but it isn't. So let me, let me read, read it. Um, those of you, um, it should be familiar to those of you who are married, uh, and it will become familiar to those who uh, will become married in the future. Okay? It's, it's not a long passage of scripture, but it delivers a powerful punch in terms of its commands to husbands. All right. So let's read it. Ephesians uh, 5.25. Husbands. 
love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? Herb, Herb has it. Good on you, Herb. Uh, a lot of times men memorize 522, right? <laughs> that one they memorize, right? Wives, be submissive to your own husbands as, in, as, as is to Christ. So, but um, I think this one is for men, it's, it's uh, more important. So, 17 words in the NASB 95, yet within that scripture verse is the command of what husbands are to do, how they are to do it, namely love their wives as Christ loved the church, and what it looks like to do that. And that's by giving yourself for your wife. So within that scripture verse, we see a command, husbands love your wife. Then we see a comparison, as Christ loved the church. And then we see the culmination of his love and gave himself up for her. So today we're going to look at the command, the comparison, and the culmination in this verse. And then we will look at the course correction. Uh, or the application for those of us who are married and need to change the things about how we love our own wife. Okay. So the theme of this ser uh, uh, sermon is Christian husbands must love his a Christian husband must love his wife by modeling the example of Christ's love for the church. Okay. So sometime back in the mid '90s, my wife and I. This is my wife over here, by the way. For those of you who don't know, on the left. Um. Uh, she captured me, you know, at a, at a young, early age. And the rest is history. The rest is history, as they say. Yes. So, anyway, so sometime back in the mid-'90s, uh, uh, my wife and I attended a marriage getaway sponsored by Joint Heirs, uh, which is a fellowship group at Big Grace in Southern California where, where we were members for 32 years. And uh, one of the sessions was taught by Pastor Rick Holland. Some of you may know his name. He's, he's out this, uh, on this, this coast now. Uh, and he began his sermon by saying that there are four rings of marriage. Okay? There is the promise ring, which comes first when two people decide that they indeed uh, want to get married uh, to each other at some point in the future. And then after some time has passed and the two people are really serious now about getting married, the man usually presents an engagement ring to his prospective wife. Okay? And then after... The engagement has passed, the period of time has passed, and they finally get to the altar, then they get the wedding ring, right? With that comes the vows. And then finally, after the honeymoon and married life begin, and they settle down into the couple of settle down, um, then comes the suffer ring. <laughs> right? You know the fourth ring, that's the suffering, okay? So... And anyone who's married, I'm sure, can attest to going through some difficulties um, in marriage with his or her spouse at some point during, during their, their married life. And why is that? Why do we have the problems? Well, it's because we have two sinners living together under the same roof, and they don't always behave that the way they should, that is, the way the Bible instructs them to live. Right? So... Here's an applicable quote to this from Mark Shaw in his book, The Heart of Addiction. Mr. Beeman, how are you? Doing well. Yeah. Um, did you and record? Yes, I did. Yeah, Thank okay. you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, in The Heart of Addiction, uh, that cogently describes our problem. He says this. Do you know that prior to being born again, you were a slave to sin and that you practiced sinning just as someone practices the piano or practices his golf swing? These sinful practices are habitual, and you bring them into your new walk with Christ and the Holy Spirit. 
and I will add that you and your wife both bring them with you into your marriage, right? And so if we, as husbands, are loving our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, then our marriages should be a guiding light to those who are in marriages that are in deep trouble. So I chose this passage of scripture because I seem to be dealing with this topic frequently during counseling sessions with men individually and also within joint marital counseling. Uh, it's interesting to note that I was reading MacArthur's book on the fulfilled family, and he says in it, and this is his, a quote from him, he says, It is significant, by the way, that husbands are not commanded to lead but to love their wives. Right? So let me repeat what MacArthur said. It is significant, by the way, that husbands are not commanded to lead but to love their wives. So when I read that, I instantly recognized some of the problems husbands have. As uh, we've been told so many times that we are to lead our wives. How different would the marriages be if husbands stopped trying to lead their wives and love them instead? So without fail, during marital counseling, the man will bring up scriptures that pertain to his wife. And what are those? Submit. Submit, Submit woman. I man you woman, I say you do. Right? It doesn't go over very well. I guarantee you that. So, but without fail, they bring up 1 Peter uh, 3.1, right? Which says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, right? In Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, right? And the other verse most frequently cited is 1 Corinthians 7.4. What is that? That one. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, right? And this is always brought up in reference to the husband wanting to have his desires met. So when discussing these verses with a husband, I will point out to uh, point them to Ephesians 5.25 and ask the question, are you loving your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? Right? Invariably, the response is, yes, I'm a good provider. Right? Uh, I help out around the house sometimes. Um, and I think I'm loving my wife well. The wife, of course, has a totally different opinion of how well her husband is loving her, right? Many times the wife sees the husband as an overbearing dictator who bosses her and the children around as if they were his personal army. Okay, so this disparity points to the difference in how men and women understand what it means for husbands to love your wives. So let's begin digging into the scripture by looking at the first part of the command. Husbands, love your wives. First of all, it's a command, not a suggestion. A husband who is not loving his wife is in sin, sin right? Of course, the word husband refers to a man in a marriage, a man who has entered into the institution of marriage. We'll discuss the institution of marriage and what it should look like later. So the next word in our scripture is the word love. Okay, I think this is one of those words that has been so overused that we have lost the true meaning of what it means. Right? We hear people say they love their dog. They love their favorite movie. They love their favorite meal. They love a Starbucks cinnamon dolce latte. Hey. <laughs> None of these explains what the word loves means. Right? In, not even close. Webster's Dictionary, there are over 13 different explanations for what love is. Some people think love is an emotional feeling uh, that they feel towards one another. 
and it certainly can and should be part of a loving relationship. But in the scripture, the, the, the word in the Greek for love is agape, right? Agape, right? And in this, in Galatians 5.22 in the NASB, it takes the form agapeo. There are three different words for love in the Greek. There is eros, which is used in the New Testament to refer to romantic or sexual love. There is uh, philia, which is used to refer to a close friendship or brotherly love, uh, like in the city of Philadelphia, or the city of brotherly love. And then there is... That's a lie. We lived there. Oh, you live there. There's not much brotherly love left. We call it the city of brotherly shove. Brotherly shove. I like that one. That's a good one. Yeah. But, I, I know, there is the lack of love all over the place. That's a problem, right? So, And then there's agape love. And the essence of agape love is goodwill, benevolence, a willful delight in the object of love. Okay? The behavior of agape love is described in First, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Right? And it says, it describes agape love. Love is patient. Love is kind and not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is a practical application of agape love. Each time the word love is used in these passages, it is translated from agape. And this is how a person demonstrates agape love towards another person. So the definition of love that we came up with in our SI class a couple of months ago is this. And I attribute this most of this to David Beeman because he was given it, right? And it was a person making the greatest sacrifice for someone else's greatest benefit or highest need. Did you get the word there, though? That word is sacrifice and gave, right? You give a sacrifice. That's, that's agape love. It's sacrificial love, right? Um, I think uh, there's, that is a great definition. And then also Vodi Bakum calls it uh, biblical love, and he thinks uh, he defines it as this. It's an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Okay, An act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. That's love directed towards someone a good good example or a good definition so we have many of examples then of where agape love is used in scripture right? agape is the love ascribed to god in john 3 35 where it says the father loves agapeo the son and has given all things into his hand uh, this is also the love that jesus has for the apostles stated in john 15 12 this is my commandment, that you love, agapeo, one another, just as I have loved, agapeo, you. And in Romans 5.8, we get a better picture of how agape love manifests itself to us. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love, agape, towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there is the, again, the sacrifice, the sacrificial love, one person giving, in this case, Christ giving his life for his redeemed people. So we have to ask ourselves some questions about this command. Okay, why did Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have to give this command, husbands, love your wife? Why did he have to do that? 
Well, what was going on at the time that he wrote this that would necessitate this command? They were in Ephesus, right? This is in, this is in the book of Ephesians. So, and then what is the intended result of this command as obeyed and implemented by the husbands? So that's the three questions. In our culture, it seems obvious that husbands should love their wives. Right? After all, the two of them loved each other enough to get married, right? This is not necessarily the case during the time that Paul wrote this. Most marriages were arranged by parents, and some, sometimes for business reasons, sometimes for status reasons rather than for love. You could have two people get married because they were told to do so, and they might not even like each other. Right? Women were often treated like property and had no rights in the society. So we'll, we'll see an example of this in, in Genesis uh, 24 when uh, Abraham said to his servants in verse 4, but you go into your country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And then we get down to verse 51, and, and Rebekah's father and brother say, here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So clearly this is an arranged marriage. They hadn't even met. They didn't even know each other. I mean, it worked out, but, but what if it doesn't? Now, there's many other examples of, of arranged marriages in the Bible, and this is typical throughout the region in Ephesus where Paul's letter was directed. Now, Mounts' dictionary says, the culture of the Old Testament was such that women were, at times, given to men in marriage. Love was not a prerequisite for such an event to take place, but true love could develop. So notice that Mount says that true love could develop. So I added my question on here, but what if it didn't? What then? Well, then you have two people who are living together intimately and not loving one another. So then, the Paul... The had the answer to that. He got trouble, my friends, right here in River City. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can take that a little further, too. It's like, there's a proverb that says... Better to live on the corner of the roof yes. than with a contentious wife, right? Some bad things come out if you're not, you know, treating one another right. So, but that's why Paul gives a command. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, it's no longer optional. He likewise instructs the wives to submit to, her, to their own husbands. But that's a different sermon. This is about husbands, okay? So for whatever reason is this command given? Well, I submit to you it is one of the things women need most from their husbands. They need to know they are loved. And where does this idea come from? God. Comes from God, right? God loves us, right? How about in Genesis 29? We get a good picture here. We have Jacob who travels to the land of his uncle Laban looking for a wife. And when he gets there, he sees Rachel and he wants her for a wife. So after negotiating with Laban, Jacob agrees to work for him seven years. And at the end of seven years, he can marry Rachel. So let's pick it up from verse 20. So Jacob serves uh, seven years for Rachel, and they seem only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. He was totally, you know, enraptured of her. And then Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. Right? So then Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took... Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. 
So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he, Jacob, says to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week. Key verse here. Fulfill her week. And we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, right? Fulfilled her week, meaning Jacob was with Leah for the full week. And so at the end of the week, Laban then gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. So then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah and served with Laban still another seven years. This is a tragic situation from the beginning, right? Jacob, who worked seven years in order to marry Rachel, ends up with Leah on his wedding night. The MacArthur Bible uh, Study Bible notes say that the practice of veiling the bride and the dark of night made the deception possible. Think about that. Do you think it's really possible? I think alcohol was involved. <laughs> Bingo. So... I think that's what I said. I think there must have been also a custom of not talking to each other before consummating the marriage, right? Don't say any words, just go in, just, you know. Feel in the dark. Uh, otherwise, I don't see how Jacob wouldn't know he was with Leah instead of Rachel, or perhaps Jacob had too much wine at the wedding feast, right? And did, didn't know. And so the deception was effective, and he wakes up, and here's, here's Leah. So... Jacob finds out he wed Leah, goes to complain to Laban. What do you think, or how do you think Leah felt about this, knowing that Jacob didn't want her? Certainly not loved. Not loved, right? Yeah. So Jacob fulfills his week of service with Leah, which is seven days of cohabitation, and then he gets to marry Rachel. So then Leah had Jacob for seven nights, and then she no longer has it. He weds Rachel, and Leah is now left alone most of the time. Jacob now has two wives, and they each have maids who will later bear him children as a result of the jealousy between the sisters that ensues as each of the sisters offers up their maids to bear children because that was a way to um, gain favor with Jacob. Okay, so let's look at Leah now. In, in uh, Genesis 20, 29, 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, after the firstborn, which she thought she would be loved, but then again heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now, this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord, therefore... She called his name Judah, and then she stopped bearing. So 
Leah wanted to be loved by Jacob, but his affections were for Rachel. He spent most of the nights with her, and we know that from verse 34, we know that from verse 34, where she says, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Okay, so here's, if you're keeping score, it's three and up, right? And then it was four and up. Uh, but still, Jacob is not showering Leah with any love. He is still with Rachel all the time. And uh, only most of the time because he had four sons. He still have four sons. There was times, right? And you know, so those were there are certain times that he wouldn't be with her, right? And we could, we could figure out what those are. Um, but Leah occasionally has relations with Jacob, but she does not receive the love she wants. Her whole married life is a, is is of a wife longing for the love of her husband, Jacob. So wives desire to feel the love and affection of their husbands. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3, it says, let the husbands render to his wife the affection due her. Gill's expository of the Bible describes this as both conjugal and includes all the offices of love, tenderness, humanity, care, provision, and protection, which are to be performed by the husband to the wife. Marriage then was instituted by God back in Genesis 2.18, right, where it says, and the Lord said, Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Then in verse 21, we pick it up. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. Right? And Adam said, this is, yeah, wow, wow, no, he said, va, 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 voo, right? He'd never seen that, right? No, he said, now this is bone of my bone, and fle-. this is, of course, the, the, you know, probably the restrained version. It starts with the, excla- you know, just lines of exclamation, right? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall become, be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the marriage. This is the institution of marriage, right? They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were unashamed. So here we have the first marriage, and it's perfect. Two people who are made in the image of God, sinless, living in perfect communion with one another. This is marital bliss. This is the only marital bliss that ever was, right? Didn't last long. Uh, Because... Shortly thereafter, right, uh, sin entered the world, right? The, the fall came, and everything was cursed from that point on, including marriage. In Genesis 3, we see the curse on the woman in verse 16. It says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Okay, so now every woman who's had children believes that verse, right? Um and even those who haven't had children. They know people have had children, and they hear about it. They know the pain. They believe this. It's true. There's pain in childbirth, and that's part of the curse. And then it says, your desire shall be for your husband. Does that sound like a good thing? Your desire? We always look and read that just at face value. Oh, she's going to want her husband, right? But the next verse says, and he shall rule over you. Well, there's two interesting words in that verse. One is desire. And at first glance, we think it's a good thing, but um, the Hebrew word for that is uh, teshuka, and it's used only one other time in the Bible, and that's in Genesis 4-7, 
where God is speaking to Cain and says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, teshuka, is for you, but you must master it. We know sin's desire is to control us, right? It's not a term of endearment. In fact, all people are slaves to sin before salvation. Likewise, the curse put on the woman was the desire to control her husband. Then we come to the husband who shall rule over her. And the, and the Hebrew word for shall rule is mashal, which means to rule, have dominion, reign, or govern. So here we have the battle of the sexes began, and now we live in a world where in many places women are treated like property. As an example, in China, over the past 35 years, during the one-child-per-family policy, female infanticide was practiced because a male child was considered to be more valuable than a female. Right? This is the twisted world that we have as a result of sin. When Paul wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, it was not any different than the rest of the Roman world at the time. So remember, this is where the Temple of Diana is. Uh, where, uh, where there are temple prostitutes serving the goddess and the men of Ephesus uh, would, would have participated in the worship of Diana by engaging with the prostitutes and the men would not have a very high view of women. Right? So Paul writes the command for both the wife and the husband with the desired result being that Christian marriages would reflect the original marriage that God created in the beginning. And Paul states as much in this book in Ephesians 5.31 at the end when he says, For this reason, a man shall live, leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is Paul's emphasis here is that the marriage should be reflective of what God had established in the beginning. And this is the, this is the same language that Adam used in Genesis when God had created the woman and brought her to, to him. It's also restated by Jesus in Matthew 19.5. So, so we've looked at the command in this verse. Now let's look at the comparison of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wife. There's a command. Comparison. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Okay. So we need to look at how Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? We heard a little bit today, today's message. Right? Um, we tend to focus on the cross, right, which is the culmination of his work. But he did so much more to demonstrate his love for his church. Christ's whole life and purpose was to redeem a people for himself. Uh, the church, and with that in mind, he began his public ministry some three and a half years before the cross, right? At the beginning of his ministry, he selected the apostles, right, which are the foundation of the church, he, Christ, being the chief cornerstones, Ephesians 2.20. So that's the first thing he did for his church. He selected the apostles. Right? And what was the purpose? Well... For three and a half years, Jesus poured himself into the disciples, teaching them everything they needed in order to prepare them for the time when he would no longer be with them and the building of his church would begin and continue until his return. Right? And we know this because in John 17, 20, he says in a prayer to the Father, 
I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the word that they have is the very word they receive from Jesus. And then earlier in the book of John, in verse 14, 26, he said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. So in three and a half years that Jesus is walking with his, his disciples, what do you think were the things that he told them? Three and a half years, he told them all of Scripture, everything pertaining to Jesus Christ, everything pertaining to the church. Because how do we know that? Because they wrote it down in the epistles. That's how we know. And it says right here that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything that I told you. Now, how many of you can remember something you said four days ago or something someone told you four days ago? What did you say? What? <laughs> what was that? Just two minutes ago, right? Imagine the Holy Spirit brings to their remembrance everything that he told them for three and a half years. That's how they're able to pull up scriptures from the Old Testament and compare them and talk about how we are to live today. So that's the first thing Jesus did, right? He pours himself into the apostles for three and a half years, teaching them the Old, Old Testament. And then the Holy Spirit's going to teach them and bring to their remembrance all that he told them. And for what purpose? What was the purpose? So that they would be able to preach the gospel write down the books of the New Testament in order to bring people to salvation and to fill the church with believers, right? How are we saved? We're saved through the word, right? Paul wrote it in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, right? And so that's the first thing. It's the word. They hear the word and the word is written and the word is delivered to us from the Holy Spirit, through the man who were with Jesus, and into the New Testament. Um, so then, Jesus also demonstrated his love for the church by working tirelessly in the ministry. An example of this is when he fell asleep in the bow of a boat during a storm. Mark 4, 37 through 38 says, Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And there arose a fierce gale, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Right? So how many of you have been in a boat with waves crashing into it, with water splashing over the side, spraying everyone with water to the point where it's filling the boat? You been there? Yeah. So Herb, could you take a nap? Sleep? No. No? I couldn't either. I could imagine. I mean, I, I, I can't think of a worse place to take a nap. So I've been in rough seas myself, and I personally, you know, people being thrown out of their bunks, you know, if you're in the bunks down below. But here we have Jesus sleeping on the cushions. How exhausted does a person have to be in order to be able to sleep through that? That's like sleeping on a roller coaster. I mean, we just, that just came to my mind because we went to Dollywood. And, you know, kids were on roller coasters, so... Not me, but anyway, husbands, the question is, do we work to the point of exhaustion for our wives to make sure that she has everything she needs and even what she desires? Do we work the extra hours to earn some extra money in order to allow our wives the money needed to purchase things for the house she wants, like furniture, drapes, dishes, even flowers? Or is our focus on our own comfort 
or should it be taking care of our wife, helping her with the things that she's doing on behalf of the family? Right? Jesus also showed his love by serving his disciples. It says in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Wait a minute. He didn't say, I came to lead. No. To serve and to be served and to give his, his life a ransom for many. We see him demonstrate this when he washed the disciples' feet. Right? MacArthur says this about that event. He says, the pillars of Christian character describe the scene like this. The, wash, the foot washing task normally went to the slave who was lowest on the social ladder. So it was not an agreeable job. Apparently, the room in Jerusalem that Jesus and the Twelve had procured to celebrate the Passover supper had no such servant available, and none of the disciples volunteered to wash the other's feet. Likely, no one wanted to humble himself in such a way that he would be disqualified from the loftiest position in the kingdom since the debate about the kingdom was still fresh in everyone's mind, right? That was the question where they were asking Jesus, well, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? So they're all, you know, talking about themselves. So, therefore, Jesus humbly took the initiative and began doing what nobody else in the room was willing to do. As he came with his towel and a basin of water to Peter, there must have been somewhat of a silence as the men witnessed the king of glory undertaking one of the most menial and unpleasant tasks. So, for what husbands here, how many unpleasant tasks are there around home that we let our wives do so that we could... Relax. And there, <clears throat> how many of those could we easily humble ourselves to do in their stead? Right? Certainly, there are some tasks that my wife automatically won't do, and that's fine. I think, you know, the job of bug killing. <laughs> I am the chief bug killer. And they give me the creeps too. But <laughs> I do it for her or my daughter. Uh, by the way, there's a dead roach over here. Oh. I did not kill it. I saw it earlier, so but I just wanted you to be aware of this there and don't step on it. Um, that's an effective way, though, to kill them. Uh, anyway, so they give me the creeps. I don't like them, but I hear my name screeched out, and I know what it is. Okay, I know what it is. <laughs> okay, so, you know, there's a myriad of ways to clean it up, but anyway. Uh, but there's many other unpleasant tasks that we could do to easily demonstrate love to our spouse, right? I mean... How about cleaning the bathroom? That's one place where lots of unpleasant tasks could be done for our wives, you know. Uh, I have read suggestions in the books that husbands could help with the dishes occasionally to show his wife love. I'm not sure why it says, or it's limited to occasionally. I mean, that was obviously written by a man. <laughs> right? Um, so how about helping with the dishes often? Or giving your wife a break and do the dishes for a whole week by yourself. Ooh. I don't think there should be a limit. But to say that as often as possible, men should help their wives in, in and around the house any way they can. That's all. Um, or how about this? Help until she says that you're helping too much. Do you think it's possible to hear that? No. <laughs> no. And so for those of you who, with, who, who have younger children, there's lots of ways, you know, you can jump in and help your wife. Yes, even changing the diapers. You know. Those aren't the pleasant ones for sure. But um, the point is, is that 
there's lots of ways to help. There's lots of ways to humble ourselves and, and to help uh, with our wives. Jesus humbled himself to the point of the lowest slave and washed the feet of his disciples. And so if we are to love our wives just as Christ loved the church, he demonstrated how to do that. So, What else did he do? He also demonstrated his love for the church by protecting his disciples. When they could have all been taken prisoner with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when the mob came to take him. In John 18, uh, 7 through 9, Jesus says to them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Jesus the Nazarene. So Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And that was to fulfill the words which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I lost not one. Right? So Jesus was concerned for the safety of disciples. So he made the point to tell the guards that he was the one they wanted so they could let the others go. So even when he knows he's going to the cross, he still thought about his disciples, the foundation of this church, the ones he had poured his life into for the next for the three and a half years to make sure they were not taken with him so that they would continue on and so that his church would be built. And Jesus also demonstrated his love for his disciples by praying for them. Right? In John 17, 15 through 21, Jesus prays the Father. He says, and we, are, we covered 15 and 16 already, but uh, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I, have, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word that they might all be one even as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me so we are the recipients of this here that those who believe me through their word this is the whole church since Christ's time right preachers have been preaching his word People have been coming to Christ and become believers and filling the churches. So he prays for their safety. He prays to keep them. And then he also demonstrates that by telling the guards, I'm the one, let them go. Um, so he prays that those who would believe uh, would become part of, the, part of the great church. And so the question is, husbands, are you praying for your wife daily? Are you praying for her growth in the Lord? Are you praying also that you would become the husband that God has called you to be for your wife? Are you praying that God would show you where you need to improve and to step up in love for your wife? Husbands, even if you and your wife are having difficulties, pray for her. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. How much more should we pray for someone you love? Right? More importantly, remember that what we covered a few weeks ago when uh, Craig talked about 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker brother and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So your prayers are contingent upon how you treat your wife, how you're loving your wife. So here's the prerequisite for your prayers to be heard. If you want to cover that again, you can go back and listen to the, um, listen to the message that Craig um, Craig did on that, and I'll, I'll touch on brief, briefly on that at the end, but really, for your prayers to be heard, you need to have the right relationship with your wife, because otherwise your prayers are going to be hindered. It's clear. 
Jesus also demonstrated love for his church by providing what the church needed for its growth. We heard that today in Ephesians 4.11. says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Notice here that Jesus gave the church what the church needed in order to grow and to be built up. He did not withhold anything that the church needed. So husbands then, are we generous to our wives? Are we giving them what they need to manage our household? Are we holding on to the money with like two clenched fists? Uh, obviously every family needs a budget, but how much money do you set aside for her to manage the household and the children, the dog, the cat, the fish, etc.? Are you giving her enough money to handle the expenses without wringing her hands about whether she spent too much on food? I mean, honestly, I'm amazed to see husbands question their wives spending on groceries when they have an $80,000 bass boat in the driveway, right? Or the latest Megatron flat screen hanging in the living room to watch sports on that costs over $10,000 a piece. <clears throat> but on the other hand, they question how much is being spent on food. There's a little, little dichotomy there, right? So far, then we've looked at the command of the scripture, the comparison within the scripture, and now this brings us to the third part, the culmination. Okay, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. That's the culmination. He gave himself for her. We usually look at that part of scripture and automatically say, oh, this is referring to Christ dying on the cross. Right? And it's true, but it only looks at the end of the process. What does it mean that he gave himself for her? What did he have to do? How did it get to the point where he could give himself for her? So we need to go back a bit further uh, before the incarnation to understand the full context of what he gave in order to die for his church. Jesus was with God and the Holy Spirit for eternity past all the way up to the incarnation, right? Uh, until he was born as a baby. So if we look at Philippians uh, 2, verses 5 through 8, we see what took place um, when he became man, right? Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not require, uh, regarded equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Okay. Jesus, who existed in the form of God, emptied himself to become a man. The Greek word for form is morph, morphe. And Gifford says it is properly the nature or essence, not in the abstract, but as actual subsisting in the individual and retained as long as the individual itself exists. Let me, let me say it again. It's a lot. It is properly the nature or essence, not in the abstract, but as actually subsisting in the individual and retained as long as the individual itself exists. So that Jesus then being in the form of God and then taking on the form or the morph of a servant means that Jesus is the essence of God and the essence of man in two. He is both God and both men, right? So that's the first thing he had to do. He had to go from being God and then become or add to that man. So then to do that, he had emptied himself, it says. And what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, one thing for sure, it, 
doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. This is what the cults will tell you. Okay? Jesus did not cease to be God when he became man. Right? But he emptied himself or set aside some of what he experienced in heaven in order to take on the form of a bond servant or a slave. So what were some of the things that Jesus set aside in order to become a man? Well, he set aside his glory because in John 17, 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. So then, he had the glory, and now he's saying, glorify me again with you like I had before, which means then he had to set aside that glory. And we see that in the transfiguration, right? Um, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. So this is the glory literally shining through, out, right? So that's set aside. You don't see that. That's covered. That's covered in his humanity. Um, because if it wasn't, if it wasn't covered in his humanity, and he walked around with this bright glow all the time, what's going to happen? I mean, everybody's going to just, okay, he's God. I'm following him for the wrong reasons. Um, and then Jesus also set aside his independent authority, right? When he became a bondservant in, in John 6.30, it says, Jesus, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is now doing the will of his father, and this is all that he does is the will of his father. And he doesn't do anything on his own authority uh, while, he is, while he is on earth. He set aside his heavenly riches. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We know that he was born into a poor family because when he was taken to Jerusalem and presented to the Lord, his parents offered either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is in Leviticus 12.7, it says concerning a mother making a burnt offering and a sin offering for her new baby. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So Mary and Joseph were too poor to afford a lamb. And remember, it was Jesus who, who later said, the foxes have holes and the birds, have, have, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What would we call Jesus today? Homeless. Homeless, so Jesus also set aside some of his divine attributes, right? Matthew 24, 36, he says, um, regarding his return to the earth. But of the day and of the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So this does not mean that Jesus was not omniscient. It means that this particular thing he set aside not to know. Okay, this is a, a tricky, tricky verse to go through um, because there's different ways to look at it. R.C. Sproul holds to this theory that his deity did not inform his humanity. So that when he answered in his humanity, he could truly say he did not know. Um, but John MacArthur says it this way. He voluntarily set aside this knowledge. Okay. Um, I don't have a problem with that interpretation because in Jeremiah 31, 34, it says of God, for I will forgive their iniquity 
and their sin I will remember no more. So in either case, you know, Jesus did not exercise his full divine attributes. He set aside some things, right? So here's God who knows everything, purposely setting aside something, right? As he becomes a man. It's part of his humility. He also set aside the face-to-face relationship he had with the Father. So when he's hanging on the cross, he cries out to the Father, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Matthew 27, 46. So here's Jesus who had perfect fellowship with the Father for eternity, now is rejected by God. And why? Why was he rejected at that moment? Our substitutionary atonement. Right? Because he had become sin. Right? Yes, right? Because that's, uh, that's uh, Habakkuk 1.13, right? In fact, I have it written down here. Did you get my notes? <laughs> because, yeah, it says here, Jesus had become our sin, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? And then secondly, Habakkuk 1.13, thine eyes are too pure, to approve evil and thou, and thou canst not look upon wickedness with favor. NASB 19, 1977. Um, so then, the father turns away from the son. The son no longer has fellowship with the father, which is why Jesus then calls him my God, my God. So think about what he gave up. This is, a, this is the relationship that has been in existence for eternity. And at this moment, Jesus on the cross... There's sin placed on him. And God, who has never looked away from the Son, looks away from the Son. Because Jesus became sin, and the Bible says that God cannot look upon sin with favor. That's the depth of humility. That's the depth right there. You know, we always think it's, oh, he went and he suffered and died, the physical. I think it's more the spiritual, right? anticipating what it was going to be like to not have that perfect fellowship with the Father. So then when the scripture says that he gave himself for the church, we now get a fuller picture of what it means. It means that Jesus came down from heaven, gave up all that we mentioned and more in order to become a man. He then lived the perfect life, perfectly fulfilled the law. He went to the cross and took the wrath of God that each of us deserved. And that's what the text means when it says he gave himself for her. It was the entire process. So then, we've looked at the command, the comparison, and the culmination. So now look at, let's look at the course correction. I say course correction because each of us who is married can improve on the way we love our wives. As husbands, one of the first things we should do is to look at 1 Peter 3.7, which uh, Craig, Craig covered a few, maybe a month ago now, I guess. He says, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. The word understanding literally means according to knowledge, right? So men, husbands, we need to learn about our wives and understand that is a gain knowledge about what makes them tick. This is not something you will ever accomplish fully. You will never know your wife perfectly, right? Why not? Why is that? Because as soon as you know them, they're gonna change, right? Just like we do. We change all the time. We're always growing, right? And everything changes through that. So then, but that doesn't mean we stop. We always, we always grow with them, right? 
Uh, and it's important. Every day is a new challenge. Every day is a new challenge. Yeah, I'd say so. Ah, there you go. It's an opportunity. Right? Thank you. Never look at it. Yes, always look at challenges as opportunities. A trial is an opportunity, right? Yeah. So I mean, we are all we are all the product of our own uh, experiences in the past. And like Shaw says, we bring all of our sins that we practice our whole life with us, right? But those experiences that we have invariably shape our behaviors and the way we respond to things. So. Learn what shapes your wife's behavior. Sometimes our wives may have uh, behave in a way that we don't think is, is rational. We don't understand it. But if a woman has had traumatic experiences in her life, and many of them have, um, and they can run the gamut from, from you know, a, a, an abusive childhood, uh, um, other types of abuse, um, parents who are abuse, abusive, and those things are going to be reflected in the way they behave and or react to certain circumstances. So as husbands, we need to learn to be sensitive to what she is sensitive about, right? Women want to feel love. They also want to feel secure. They want to feel secure in their own homes, you know, question. So, I mean, does that mean, have you, have you installed enough locks on the doors to make them feel secure? Installed cameras if they ask for them. You know, sometimes a wife is not secure in her home in her own home because her own husband is the one she needs protection from, right? It's a, that's a travesty. It's, that's just a disgusting travesty. This happens in the church as well as in the secular world. If there's one place a wife should feel ultimately secure, it is in her own home with her own husband. If you know of a situation in church where this is going on, you need to confront the man about it. If he doesn't repent, he needs to be brought to the elders. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 gives us our marching orders. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So then, who is the unruly that describes the one who is ungovernable? In tra I should say the definition then of the unruly then is the one who is ungovernable, intractable, refractory, recalcitrant, willful, headstrong, which sounds like all the traits of a wife abuser. So, who in that passage is the faint-hearted and the weak? Well, clearly that's, that's the abused wife. So if you've ever seen an abuse victim, that describes her well. If a husband is not loving his wife as Christ loved the church, then he's in sin and he needs to repent of it immediately. Wives want to feel financially secure as well. So are you doing everything you can to make your wife feel financially secure? Buying things that you don't need with money that you don't have isn't a way to attain financial security. 2 Timothy 5.2 says this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So husbands, if we're not meeting the monetary needs of our family, then we need to work more hours or even add a second job. Find a way to provide, right? Um, you also have to be wise with your money. And if you need help on doing that, seek counsel from godly men. There's plenty of people here that will help. Do you treat your wife better than you treat everyone else? Jesus said, the first commandment is what? Love God. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbors, right? Do you have a closer neighbor than your wife? No. So love her more, love her better. Men, do you tell your wife how much you appreciate her for what she does for you and your family? Do you give your wife compliments for how she looks? Do you compliment your wife in front of other people? Your wife wants to know that you find her attractive, even if you've been married for 50 years or more. Do you thank your wife after she makes you a meal for you and your family? Do you pick up after yourself around the house or do you leave things laying around for her to pick up? 
Are you keeping up on the list of honeydews or fix-its that she wants done? Think about ways you can serve your wife, make her life easier. You should ask yourself what ways you can sacrificially love her. Um, you know, if you asked her that, that alone would show that you love her, you care about her. If you put your mind to it, I think you'll find many, many ways that you can demonstrate love to your wife, right? The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6.22 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these behaviors should be evident in a relationship with our wife, right? The first of these is love, agape love. Husbands, agape love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, I hope you have found this helpful and hopeful and that those of you who are married will endeavor to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Guess what? Christ loves you that way too, right? Because Christian marriages should be a beacon of light to those who are struggling in marriage in the secular world. Those of you who are seeking to be married know what is required of you before you take your vows. Marriage is a wonderful institution created by God. Because of the fall, it takes work to make a marriage come close to what God intended it to be. But it takes two people working together to do that, right? Because it takes two people to become one. So then, any, any questions? Any comments? Well then, let me just pray. <laughs> Sorry for the heavy. <laughs> Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word. Your word is true. Your word is powerful. Uh, it's instructive. It teaches us, Lord. Help us to follow your word. Help us to, to study it, to learn it, to know it, to live it, to walk it out, uh, especially this one for husbands to love their wives uh, because a husband who, who isn't doing that, isn't loving his wife, Lord, we know is, is sinning. And we, we want to be obedient to you because we say we love you, therefore we want to be obedient to you. So help us, help the husbands here, Lord, uh, to do that. Help the wives here, Lord, to gently... Um, come alongside their husbands and to help them uh, if they're not loving their wives the way they want to be loved. Um, and we just thank you so much for uh, the day that you've given us today. And uh, we pray blessing on everyone here and, and through the week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.